Welcome to Enbus Talks, a podcast focusing on business in Singapore and Asia, where we take the lead on innovation, new technologies, and new solutions. Because Norway means business. With your host, Anders Hegre, Executive Director at the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore. Yeah, so we are here at the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. And when I say we, it's uh, Peter Stelund from Innovation Norway. Hello. And it is Dr. Sanjay Kudon uh, from uh, the center. And it's communication manager Tina Ang from the center. And this is very much a session where we are going to draw on the two doctors' uh, competence on ammonia. When I was a kid, I learned that ammonia was very toxic and that I should stay away from it. But when I got the press release from you, Tina, then I understand that this is the future of bunker fuel, perhaps. How come, Pekiste and Sanjay? Yeah, we'll come back to that. But first, I uh, I like to introduce uh, Dr. Sanjay Kutan. Sanjay, we've known each other for, for quite a few years, and uh, I'm always impressed about your uh, very diverse uh, CV uh, coming from starting first from the oil and gas industry. Uh, you were at uh, McKinsey, or oh, before that, even Exxon. Uh, then you moved into the Energy Market Authority. Uh, you've been with, uh, with uh, DNVGL which we met some years ago. And, uh, and then uh, you moved to NTU uh, and then Singapore Maritime Institute. And now this uh, chamber, no, this, this, this center, this uh, center for decarbonization. I just wonder what is, the, what is the red thread on your background into this space on energy decarbonization and then maritime? How does it tie together? Ah, red thread. Um... I guess from a personal level, it's just the desire to constantly learn. I get bored once I think I know everything with a bit of an ego there. But uh, no, I, I really like learning. So and I like pushing boundaries on areas that are new. So uh, when I moved from uh, Exxon to McKinsey, uh, we were still very much oil and gas. And when I got into the Energy Market Authority is when I started dealing with more cleaner stuff like the electric vehicle and renewables. And then I realized that there's so much challenges ahead in that space that I started moving more into into the green sector through the Clean Technology Center, DNV, and then the work we were doing at the Energy Energy Research Institute, NTU. Mm. And then then into the maritime sector, which had multiple challenges beyond energy. So that was really exciting. And, and being in the innovation space, it allowed me to learn a lot about the maritime sector and the problems. Uh, and decarbonization is only one part of those problems. So now I'm zooming in, you know, so to say. But I think it's, it's such an uh, ideal background. Uh, you have the energy understanding with everything, even from the oil and gas industry, so the whole specter electricity, oil and gas, and new with the new uh, low-carbon fuels. Uh, you have your, your experience from the maritime sector, and it all comes together now in this global center for maritime decarbonization. So for the, for the listeners that, uh, that may not know this center, what is it? When was it started and why? Well, it started uh, officially on the 1st of August, 
And the why really was uh, one, IMO had decided that they wanted to draw lines in the water, so to say, in terms of its decarbonization aspiration, which means countries and port states that ratified towards those goals had to start thinking actively of doing something significant. Mm. Singapore being an international maritime center uh, and a key player also needed to up its own ante in terms of trying to understand what global role should it play, let alone for domestic purposes. And in doing so, set up an international advisory panel on decarbonization um, in the year 2020, mm. which came up with a 9 by 4 recommendation. And one of the 9 by 4 recommendations was to set up a, a global center for maritime decarbonization. So that was announced in April during the Singapore Maritime Week in 2021. And of course, we were established on August 2021. And here we are. And you're building up uh, now a, a team of experts uh, and uh, and market um, yeah, market experts that are looking into global challenges. Uh, and I understand your first uh, uh, quest has been in this area of uh, ammonia, ammonia in the maritime uh, sector, ammonia as a bunker. So maybe we should follow up on uh, Anders's. Uh, Question: What is ammonia, and what does it have to do with with maritime sector? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, very pertinent question. But maybe just I, just on the expert part, and I think uh, what GCMD is trying to do is take a two prong approach. We're going to have some experts within GCMD, and we're going to have more experts outside GCMD that we work with, right. because I don't think we're going to try and. Uh, monopolize all the experts within the center. But I think we want to build relationships and knowledge partners of sorts, you know, uh, so that we can really leverage the expertise uh, uh, outside GCMD. The thing about ammonia is this. When you look at the alternative fuels, ammonia doesn't have a carbon molecule. So it does naturally lend itself to a decarbonized fuel. But there are a number of constraints. One constraint is its toxicity. Now, toxicity is not new to human civilization or industrialization. If you look at our history of industrialization, we have handled a lot more toxic material, but knowing how to handle it is key, right? It's not that we can't handle it. So ammonia has been moved as a commodity today, uh, globally, and we have handled it safely. The difference is if you're going to use ammonia for bunkering, then we need to accept the fact that there are going to be multiple stakeholders with different levels of capabilities and infrastructure to move the molecule from point A to point B to point C to point D. And because of this complexity and multi-involvement, we need to have better guidelines on how to handle it as a bunkering fuel. Right, And therefore, this study is to establish the rules, the guidelines to protect both the seafarer, the investment on the assets and more, and also the environment. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, and why Singapore? Uh, as you know, the Global Centre is not obliged to only fund projects in Singapore. We can fund projects globally. 
The reason why we thought Singapore was a good place to do it is it is one of the busiest ports in the world with a thousand ships a day, which means we are space constrained. It has a long coastline close to communities, which means there's other considerations when you're handling uh, a toxic gas like uh, ammonia. So therefore, if we can develop guidelines and operating envelopes that actually uh, can exist in a very constrained world, the opportunity to do ammonia bunkering elsewhere becomes easier. So we thought it's a good test case. Thank you. But let's backtrack a little bit on the uh, ammonia things. Uh, we, I think we have to explain to our uh, listeners as well a little bit about ammonia. I think most people, at least myself, I associate ammonia with uh, my grandmother's uh, detergents. You know, she used ammonia or ammoniac that's what we say in Norway, uh, for cleaning. It, you know, it's, it's a strong um, detergent with, uh, with a very pungent smell. Uh, and also for, for uh, fertilizer production. Uh, one of the leading Norwegian companies is Yara that makes uh, fertilizer using ammonia, producing ammonia. So where's the connection here? Ammonia, which is a fertilizer and detergent. And suddenly we're talking about maritime bunker. Where's yeah. the connection here? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it is just finding another use for a molecule that we already have been using it in other industrial applications. So ammonia is a fuel. Yeah, ammonia is a fuel. And so what's so, the difference between that one and let's say LNG? Okay, or, so or natural gas. Okay, so natural gas has a carbon molecule, the CH four. Ammonia is nitrogen, hydrogen three, right? right. So from you burn a, a LNG, you're still releasing carbon into the air. One. Two is the way you manufacture uh, or get uh, methane or LNG is through um, gas reserves in the ground. Unless you can produce biomethane, which is a cleaner, cleaner version of methane. But in ammonia, right, today the problem with ammonia is it is very black, which means the hydrogen coming for the ammonia production is actually made from uh, what you call steam met uh, methane reformers, SMRs, which means they use natural gas to actually make the hydrogen from the Haber-Bosch process, right? All right. Okay. So what you're saying basically is that ammonia is a carrier of energy, which is hydrogen, for example. Hydrogen. But you don't use the carbon as the basis for the transport. Yeah, but it's nitrogen instead. Yes. So when you when you uh, combust or use this fuel, it produces, instead of producing CO2, CO2 it produces nitrogen and maybe water. It produces and actually... Nitrogen is not a climate... Well, well, that's not strictly true because when you do combust uh, ammonia, whilst you can get water, which is the well, one side of the occasion, Depending on the temperatures in the combustion chamber, you do get N2O and you do get NOx, right? Right, which also has global warming potential. So you're not really out of the woods yet, right? What you've actually removed is the carbon factor. Yes. But nitrogen and uh, oxides and uh, and N2Os do does have global warming potential of 200 times. Okay. Of CO2. But, but basically, what we're saying is, if we have, if we replace uh, the conventional bunker today, mm. which is uh, hydrocarbon based, uh, which is uh, heavy bunker oil, or even 
natural gas or LNG, which is kind of the intermediator, it still produces CO2 that is emitted to the atmosphere and does the climate change, okay? So you can replace that with ammonia that is produced. Uh, we can go, come back to the, the, the sourcing of that one. So that will definitely uh, reduce the carbon footprint of the shipping industry, uh, but also maybe the port operations and the maritime or anything else as well that is now burning fossil fuel. Is that what? Yes. What you what? Okay. Uh, LNG aside, what when you burn uh, fuel oil? There's other contaminants like particulate matter, soot, black carbon, all that comes out, right. which is a big issue, mm. right? You're getting rid of all that. Yes. Okay. But uh, like you said, if we go back to how we want to do things properly, then you need to do a life cycle analysis and how ammonia is produced. Not just take ammonia at its point of use, but we need to look at the carbon footprint of its creation and its use. So all the way from production to wake. So would you say that it's in Singapore's maritime strategy or decarbonization strategy as a whole? I mean, it was just some uh, very interesting news uh, at the at the budget uh, announcement on Friday on yeah. the CO2 tax, for example, uh, to replace or try to replace uh, the, the, the conventional uh, uh, fossil fuel or fossil bunker on long term with this new cleaner uh, bunker, if yeah. I can call it that one, or the substance? Yeah, I think Singapore, uh, it, it, there's a couple of complications around there. Uh, first thing you got to remember, the carbon tax, it's not just carbon. Uh, we use the word loosely, carbon tax, but it's actually a GHG tax, global uh, 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 greenhouse gas right tax so it's a carbon equivalent tax so it applies to gwp gases go uh, gases with global warming potential right but we generically say carbon tax so it's important to understand that as we transition uh, from a, a carbon-based fuel to a non-carbon-based fuel like ammonia then it's really important that we know how to handle it and we know how to account for the CO2. So just because you switch to ammonia today doesn't mean you won't get taxed because it has to be seen in a, on a life cycle basis. And I think that's what the tax system needs to grapple with, right? Do I tax within my borders? How do I tax about CO2 produced somewhere else? Uh, and things like that. And these things need to be worked out. But these are policy. But the science of it is very clear. If you burn ammonia today, you are still creating a CO2 burden on the environment, right? On an LCA basis. So that needs to be resolved. Right. That's the sourcing point. side, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, how you produce it. Uh, there are movements now, uh, for example, I mentioned Yara, the Norwegian fertilizer company that are building up a, uh, a clean ammonia factory in Australia. Yeah. They would use renewable energy. They would uh, get the hydrogen from electrolysis and uh, nitrogen from the air and then combine it and it's all relatively carbon free. So that so that uh, value chain or the sourcing also has to be looked into. Now that's what you're meaning with. You have to make sure that every step yeah. is carbon free or carbon neutral. Yeah. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. sense. 
Exactly. Okay, a little bit back to the to the because your 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 project now with the center is on the safety aspects. Uh, ammonia is not a new chemical. No. It's I think on an annual basis we're producing about 250 million tons per year. Uh, about 10%, 15% of that is shipped by ships. The rest is pipeline or even trucks or other things. So don't we know how to handle ammonia? We've done this for decades. What's the new? Yeah, so handling ammonia as a commodity um, is, is easier than handling ammonia as a bunkering fuel because of the number of touch points and the transfer. So it's the frequency of transfer. So you can imagine uh, a scenario where if I'm transferring ammonia by pipeline, right? Everything is locked up. There's no leakage in a well-maintained pipeline. It's just turning a valve remotely from a control center and everything goes from one tank to another. There's no human exposure. But when you do bunkering, it's a very different scenario because then you're going from a tank to an intermediate vessel. And that's all manual to a certain degree because the vessel needs to come alongside, you need to do the hookup arrangement, things needs to be make sure it's sealed and then you transfer the thing. That's the first transfer. The second transfer is the bunker vessel to the actual vessel. So now you see there's multiple transfers and and you know at 0.5% ammonia leakage can kill you. So you can't afford any mistakes. And this is the one that we're trying to solve. All right. So the experience is from LNG bunkering, which is also a highly flammable gas. And in addition has the cold aspect. That is more or less has been handled. There are standards being developed. There are best practices. Uh, can we learn? Are there similarities or are there, what's the differences? Okay. Yeah, no, we definitely can learn. I, uh, we can learn from everything, you know, uh, whether it's there or not there. We should always take the opportunity to learn. The difference is that the leakage of LNG in small amounts, the effects are quite different from ammonia. Uh, LNG, if it leaks by small amounts and there's no hot source around, will not burn, will not catch fire, you'll have freezing, uh, you know, whatever it is. But in ammonia, it'll kill. Right. Very low concentration. Okay. So this is what the difference is. So the safety aspects is quite... So uh, what's, what's the status now for uh, ammonia acid bunker? Do we have any ammonia fuel ships? On the waters today, are the engines are, are the engine manufacturers starting now to making uh, ammonia uh, engines? Do we have to split the ammonia molecule and make it or, or decompose it into the hydrogen and the nitrogen before we put it in the engines? Or what is the status? Okay, so two engine makers are building ammonia-fired engines. Man. Yeah. And MAN and Watsila, I believe. Watsila's plans are not so public yet, so I'm not sure of the timeline. But MAN's timelines are more public. By 2024, they would have finished all the testing required for dual fuel engine burning ammonia. And in 2025, they hope to install it into a vessel. The vessel has not been named to date, or at least is not available publicly. So we know for a fact there will be a dual fuel engine burning ammonia. And we are looking at burning ammonia as ammonia and not splitting out the hydrogen. Because 
the hydrate, the spitting out will cause more energy input. So you don't want to put energy to bring it together and then put someone <laughs> to take it apart. You just want to burn it yeah. straight up. Yeah. yeah. Ammonia as a bunker, or even ammonia as an energy carrier, uh, or even ammonia as a, uh, the fuel for electricity generation is, is popping up uh, all over the world. It's, it's, it's getting, gaining popularity for many reasons. And as you said, of course, there are some challenges that has to be addressed, some international standards for handling and all this. What do you think Singapore's role in this, in this global uh, picture is going to be? I mean, you already have ambition of being a major LNG trading hub. Uh, will, you, will Singapore be, also have the ambition of being an ammonia trading hub, you think? Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, one is Singapore already takes in ammonia as a commodity, right? So VOPEC has uh, storage terminals for ammonia, which is, has more of an industrial usage than anything else. Singapore is also must be uh, is also cognizant that it has to be able to avail multiple fuels uh, to multiple customers, right? And I think LNG ammonia is one of two op uh, one of the few options. Uh, the other option that it will need to also consider is biofuels as a drop in. Uh, it also would have to consider uh, biomethanol as a drop-in. It has to consider bio-LNG as a drop-in. If you're having LNG, then you would need to also be prepared to deliver bio-LNG at some point. So it got, has to see itself as a multi-fuel port. It is the largest bunkering port in the world, which means a lot of vessels come here, which means there's a high chance you're going to have different types of vessels demanding different things. So the question really is, in a space-constrained environment like Singapore, we don't have much space. And the required uh, safety sanitation for running all these pipelines and operations of different types of fuel, you can imagine LNG because an LNG and ammonia having different kind of safety uh, limits because of its one is for leakage and one for explosivity. Right. So you, how much space do you give? How many, how many tank lines do you, can you run? How many different storage tanks can you have when you are space limited? So all these considerations need to be put side by side, depending on the safety boundaries that are created. And then you, then you start thinking, how are we going to serve? And then how fast do we get ready to serve? So safety study is a no regret move. You're going to have to know about it. But the big, big elephant in the room is when and that you need to really t be very close to state multiple stakeholders understanding what their desire is uh, i think when we were looking at lng for almost 10 years before people decided that they were going to build cma cgm decided they're going to build nine lng ships and they said they were going to come here so then you have a timeline to be prepared to serve uh, customers that are burning lng and this will continue to increase yeah. similarly for every every new fuel it is just not about having the fuel and uh, able to deliver but you don't want to put infrastructure that's going to be sitting there idle and pushing molecules once every six months 
because you will never get your return on investment for the use of that infrastructure. So timing is also very important. So there's always a constant uh, discussion among all the stakeholders. You know. Well, timing is one thing, of course, and the other is uh, government uh, push, uh, incentives, uh, and and. Uh, uh, and support for industry. Do you see Singapore is moving in that direction, the maritime uh, authorities, uh, to facilitate uh, ammonia? I mean, uh, your uh, center is partly funded by the, uh, MPA. the Singapore government. Yeah. Uh, so obviously they have ambition to you know, build up Singapore also as a knowledge hub for handling these things, for, for looking at the technology challenges uh, for for uh, safety challenges and these things. So so what's what, what is Singapore government thinking now? What what are they going to go forward with? Do you think? I'm not so sure what they're going to go forward with today. If you ask me, we probably know in the next couple of weeks over the budget debate and the uh, when the Ministry of Transport makes announcements of what their plans are for the maritime sector. Right. There might be some clarity made then. But what is, what is certain and what is logical to do if you're going to remain as an international maritime center, if you're going to remain as a major bunkering hub, then you need to be prepared to bunker more than one fuel, right? And if you're going to be prepared to bunker more than one fuel, then you need to understand the complexities of handling more than one fuel, which are very different in nature, as I mentioned earlier. So they're not a scenario where you could just use the same infrastructure. And that's why liquid ammonia is far more interesting than liquid hydrogen. Right? Because the liquid ammonia is at minus 33, you can still use carbon steel pipes. But hydrogen at minus 263, I'm not sure whether your LNG cryogenics can be used. So it's a, it's a, it's a completely different investment uh, consideration. But until we get to that point, we need to understand other than the physical nature of these molecules in different uh, states, whether it's liquid, solid or gas, we also need to understand what it takes to deliver the service, mm. you know, and how do we train the manpower. So this part of the study is just not safety study. There's an element on manpower training. How do we actually train people to handle this competently? Because you can imagine if I was an operator and I'm going to be handling a gas that can kill me, at zero point. If I can smell it, I'm probably dead by then, right? So you need to make sure that you believe in the processes, right? And the considerations so that you can do it competently and repeat that every day of your life because that's the frequency that we're talking about, which is so different from commodity transfer of that molecule. I, I just want, uh, because I would like to go a bit back to the sourcing as well just to get my head around uh, sort of uh, what kind of carbon footprint that would make. And also, I would think, is this going to be cheap or expensive okay. as a bunker fuel? And uh, a last question that I sit with also, what kind of uh, impact will it have on the decarbonization journey? Because uh, when you last moderated the panel for Enbus, Pegister, you were quite optimistic on the time perspective and that we would get there. And so I just wonder how will this, um, what impact will ammonia have, do you think? 
okay, so the first part was sourcing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to literally source ammonia for the purpose of bunkering, then you must do it when it's green. Otherwise, there's no point. There's no compliance to IMO targets. There's no. Co- you will still get taxed, right? Because it is dirty, right? The way it's made today. So that's why work that Yara is doing in Australia to make green electrons available for the purpose of making green ammonia is very interesting. So then there's the question of who gets there first for that first molecule. Right, and then uh, how do you time it with the delivery? Because there's no point sourcing it if no one's buying it. So th- those timings need to be worked out. In terms of the actual footprint, that needs to be worked out because it's really a function of uh, efficiency of processes, the energy input along the entire supply chain. Right. I mean, and if you really want to do it properly. Then you need to say, okay, the vessel bringing the ammonia here, if it's burning on the green ammonia, that's great. But if it's burning coal, why can we do better? So every step of the way, we need to look at the carbon footprint because ultimately, it is the burden on the environment that we're trying to address. In terms of costs, it's a a couple of things. One is the economies of scale. So if you get it high enough, you can manage that. Second thing is you remember today, I'm not building a facility specifically for green ammonia, uh, green ammonia into the transport sector. If I can make green ammonia, I have today a ready demand. My black ammonia is the demand center already. It exists today right, that 200 million tons of ammonia, that exists today. If I can green that, agriculture contributes more than 20% to uh, the GHG uh, emissions. Maritime is only 3%. Agriculture does 20%, 20 over percent. If I can green the, the agriculture sector today, I'm already decarbonizing so that green ammonia can be fed. Today, so there's so the, the justification for building the plant is not dependent on whether there is an emergence of ammonia as a bunkering fuel. It already has its supply stream. So now the question is: Is shipping going to pay for a premium to divert that green electron to itself? Right? If I'm if I'm making it and I'm getting one dollar here, if you want me to go there, I'm not going to give you fifty cents. Why would I do that? Right? I either get dollar or you give me a dollar ten cents, right? Mm. So the question is, can the shipping afford to get it at a premium? Now, shipping is in the intermediary between supplying and demand. It just transport itself, right? So a couple of things will start emerging, I believe, in the horizon. One is consumer demand pressure. Two is green procurement corporate pressure. Right? And three is the supply side wanting to brand themselves as being part of the green solution. So these three factors will force ship, shippers to say, uh, if you want my contract, then you have to be green. Now, so the ship owner can say, okay, I will pay for that green premium fuel and then decide whether they bill it into the logistics cost so that's fine. If you all want green, it's going to cost you 10% more. And how that cost is spread across the individual 
consumer items or goods is a question and equation that needs to be worked out. Uh, the head of, um, I think it was CMACGM, uh, he did a calc he, he mentioned a calculation that if the cost of fuel was doubled, the impact on a Nike shoe that it transports in its 22,000 TEU is 10 cents. That's doubling the price of fuel. So the green premium has, has to be seen in its entire impact on the price of goods sold at the end of the day. And how tolerant is the market for that? Because it can be transferred. So it may not be the single burden of the person who's buying it for the transport sector. So I'm not, so the, that, that question is not easily answered is how we actually manage costs, but for what purpose? Because I can get a cheap fuel, but no one's going to use my vessel. I think we're uh, running out of time. Uh, last question, uh, Sanjay. Uh, you have also been uh, involved with Norwegian companies. I mean, you worked for, <laughs> we worked together for DNV uh, some years. Um, Norway and Singapore are maritime partners. We've been working together for ages on the yards and the shipping industry. Uh, the maritime cluster here is very strong. It's the, the main, major component of the uh, business association or the business community here. Where would you see the opportunities for Norwegian technology or Norwegian players in the ammonia field in Singapore being, uh, being coming up? In, the, in, the, in ammonia, you mean? The whole value chain for the ammonia. I mean, the sourcing is one thing. You probably won't source ammonia here, but Norwegian, <laughs> Norwegian sources, sourcers will yeah, come up. But yeah. it's the transport. We have companies that are doing cryogenic gas transportation already. BW next door here. Hög, among other, Goulart. Uh, we're talking about technology, we're talking about safety aspects, we're talking about handling, but we're also talking about the engines, uh, we're talking about the whole value chain of this. Where, where can we work together? Where, where are the opportunities for Norway-Singapore collaboration in this space? Yeah, so uh, I think when you look at the supply chain and the delivery of the, uh, the gas, right, uh, from, from production all the way to use. I think it's to identify where the pinch points are. Because a lot of technologies today, handling minus 33 uh, gas, I don't think minus 33 qualifies as cryogenic, does it? Um, well, it's frozen, but I yeah, it, <laughs> Because you can still use normal steel, right? You don't have to use cryo, it's not like your LNG cryogenics, right? right. So the question really is, uh, in, in today's delivery of ammonia, which is happening as a commodity, is there any special requirement when you want to do bunkering? If the equipment being used has a very similar type of rating that allows you right, uh, to, use, uh, to be used in a bunkering process, then the, the, the additional need for new tech becomes limiting. So it's really the new tech and new innovation Right, that needs to be considered when you look at the transfer. And if there's an opportunity there, the Norwegian companies that have solved or have solutions or in the process of uh, developing a solution wants to pilot those solutions, that's where we welcome it. Because this is what GCMD wants to do. We want to pilot technologies right before they're commercial and help them find a platform to pilot these technologies. So really trying to understand where those opportunities are to, to use our piloting projects 
to pilot some of these solutions would be the best way to to plug in. And I think that's where the open conversation should happen between Norwegian companies and GCMD and say, you know, on this ammonia thing, we anticipate you're going to have an issue here and we have got a, a rigid whatever it is that we have developed which would solve your safety leak issues or whatever it is. But we, we, it's not commercial, we would like to pilot it, and that's where we're really keen to help. Not only just Norwegian companies, but any innovator, right, uh, that is at that level, TRL 7 and above, mm. to engage. And the only way to do it is to have conversations with us. I mean, we've spoken to more than 200 different companies already uh, today. Uh, and we constantly keep talking to companies when they want to talk to us, you know, because we want to learn what's out there as well. The space is moving. And the more we learn, the better it is for us to understand what is really needed. I think that's a really great way to round it off, to, uh, to see opportunities both for uh, the environment and the humankind and for Norwegian business. And um, I want to thank you so much, uh, Sanjay, for taking your time and Pekriste uh, for uh, moderating this in an excellent way and to Tina for opening the doors to the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. The listeners can't see it, but we have a wonderful view over the harbor. Uh, and uh, yeah, on that positive note, we say uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Enbus Talks, a podcast from the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore, with your host, Anders Hegre. To find out more, go to enbus.org.sg and join us for our next podcast shortly.